FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information. Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the phone today is Damien Christoph, nutritionist, naturopath and chiropractor. Damien is a highly sought-after presenter and speaker in the wellness industry. With over 20 years of experience, Damien's in-depth knowledge of the body, nervous system, food functions and responses, coupled with his friendly and dynamic presenting style, has him in high demand. Focusing on food as key to unlocking optimal health and wellness, Damien presents in-depth facts and concepts that have never before been readily available to the public, offering all audiences, from industry experts to the general public, highly valuable content as he engages, educates and inspires audiences across the globe. Welcome, Damien. How are you? Hi, oh, Andrew. Thanks. I'm great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Now, we're going to be talking about your online presence, if you like, but I also want to delve into a little bit of your history because you're a chiropractor sure. by, by profession. So yeah. tell me about your beginnings. What drew you to become a chiropractor in the first place? It's the funniest thing because right now in the current climate, you go, well, why would you want to be a chiropractor? Because everyone's getting bashed up and <laughs> there's all that, you know, there's the, the medics getting on us. It's actually not really the medics. Most of the high-quality GPs and specialists around the town understand what we do it's just the noisy ones the fossum ones yeah. you know they tend to be a little bit you know upset with us and they don't really care to understand what we do but my the reason why i decided to become a chiropractor is because as a, as a nutritionist and a naturopath i was having profound results with my patients and i loved it and and i fell in love with uh, naturopathy and, and nature cure and nutrition um, through being introduced to it by a naturopath david fitz many many years ago and uh and i thought oh, i want to do that but the people that i saw in my naturopathic practice that tended to express the most interest in health and were also the healthiest people that I saw, even though I was dealing with, you know, sometimes very sick people, mm. um, also saw the chiropractor down the road. And I thought, well, there's got to be something to this. And so I went and saw this chiropractor. His name was Gary Coleman, and he now practices in um, Point Cook in Melbourne. He was in Terogan when I was in Gippsland as well. And and, uh, and and he just explained to me the simplicity of what chiropractic is and how it's the maintenance of the nervous system and how... Um, the, the movement of the spine and, and and the recognition of that movement in the cerebellum and the brain and you know coordination of movement through the brain stem and so on and so forth actually improves the health of the body and I thought that's fascinating so I thought I'd go and study it and it, it's as simple as that and and I experienced many amazing health benefits from chiropractic you know way outside of the normal back pain neck pain headache model which is what's often promoted. And and I thought I really want to be part of that. I want to I, I want to add that little feather to my cap. And so I took off and did five years of study in chiropractic, and and I and I still absolutely love it. I think it's fantastic. I think what's interesting from my standpoint as a nurse, um, um, I did an assignment on chiropractic, and I was looking at the safety aspects. Now this is years ago, and I I, I remember a Green Journal. I think it was the Australian Australian Journal of Public Health. And it, yep. it uh, there was a, a series or a or an article in there looking at um, 
adverse events from uh, manipulation, from adjustment. And 100% yeah. of the adverse events were from doctors trying to manipulate, <laughs> not from chiropractors. I have to revisit that and actually make sure that what I think I'm remembering is actually a fact. But So I need to validate that, uh, that thing. But I, I remember being very surprised at that. Um, that it was it's all... a really very very safe practice, and you know we don't go and study for five years for nothing. Mm. You know, five years of study, thirty hours a week is a lot of study, mm. particularly when it's primarily focused on the nervous system, the delicateness and the intricacy of the nerves and the spinal and the interaction of the spine and the nervous system. There's a lot of dedicated study to ensure number one being safe, because you know if you just got to look at um, the Hippocratic Oath, which is first do no harm. And so when somebody walks in the door, the first thing you want to do with them is, is help them get better. Mm. And uh, you know, so in studying the intricacy and the safety of, of how to assist the body and, and the nervous system and spinal cord to, to work really well, you know, you train hard on it. it it's not like doing a six-month or a six-week course like um, other people who are trying to copy us do. We train hard to, to be very safe and be very I think it's very interesting that um, in many um, medical training facilities, they no longer take the Hippocratic Oath because they can no longer um, say the words primum non nocere because you've got things like chemotherapy. Um, yeah, true. I, I think that's a very interesting point that we need to really understand. So can I ask you, have you developed a, a particular passion in treating certain groups of patients over your career? Yeah, I have, Andrew. Um, my, originally, when I was... My, my primary focus has always been around food. Like it, it always has been. And even in chiropractic, whilst I do a, a chiropractic adjustment and assist people through their nervous system with chiropractic, I'm always talking about food. And the number one seminar that I present around Australia and the, the, the main focus of most of my education is around nutrition and food. Mm. Um, I love it. I, I think it's very fascinating. I think that um, for as long as we've been doing health by numbers, we've moved further and further away from uh, what really should be going into our body on yeah, mass, which is food. And uh, and so I really I love to promote um, diet, and to that extent, uh, I found myself helping a lot of people with weight, with cardiovascular disease issues, um, inflammatory diseases, um, and in particular diabetes. Mm. And uh, and th that really has been a passion of mine. Whether it be type one diabetes, type two diabetes, um, gestational diabetes, I, I really find that whole part of it fascinating. Um, but I suppose because I practice primarily now as a chiropractor, I don't get to see that many people in that setting anymore. Mm, yeah. uh, but I have, I do employ a naturopath, and, and she's wonderful. And she looks after that that part of my practice that I still absolutely love. And and uh, and, and I, I did a TV show at one point when I was in New Zealand uh, called Downsize Me, and that, that show that show went for thirty six um, episodes, four years. Wow! And uh, and and we we taught the average punter in New Zealand how to eat food to manage cholesterol, how to eat food to lose weight, how to eat food to bring your blood sugar levels down. And it was a, a groundbreaking TV smash hit. It was the number one rated health TV show, or actually reality TV show in New Zealand at the time. And, um, and we were nailing it. It was really great. So I'm very, very passionate about food and nutrition. So can I ask you on that line, I've just recently had the honour of interviewing Pete Evans and Dr. Alessio Fasano, Dr. David Perlmutter, yes. these greats of, uh, of diet and nutrition. Um, absolutely. You know, they might have their particular skew on diet, whether it be grain-free totally or whether it be mostly wheat-free or, un, you know, unless you're a celiac, then it's definitely wheat-free, um, or yeah. whether it be paleo. And my issue is 
or my thoughts are, can you do paleo badly? Is that one of the things that you had to, um, to really teach people is how to eat properly, whatever diet they chose? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Andrew. My my feeling is that you can do anything badly. You know, I've seen very unhealthy vegans. I've seen really unhealthy vegetarians. I've seen people who are literally killing themselves doing low-carb, high-fat. Mm. Um, and and I think the, the main message that should come through each of these eating programs, whether it be paleo, you know, from Lauren Cordain or Rob Wolf or Paleo Pete, um, or if you're doing gaps, um, the the key thing should be that you eat plenty of plant-based material. That's so important. Yeah, um, it's easy for our body to digest. It's high in nutrition. It's high in, um, in phytochemicals that assist us. You just look at what Diana Minich spoke about just the other day. All of those colours uh, represent a function within the body, and, and it, it really does uh, assist our, our bodies to stay well. And so, plant plant food is is unbelievably important. Um, to, to that end, it's equally as important to select high-quality protein. So whether you're going vegan-based protein or you're going carnivorous-type proteins, it's so important to be choosing uh, a high-quality protein. Just because it says it's protein doesn't mean it's going to be good for you. You know, you can get the most highly refined protein, um, something that's got all the additives and all the colors and all the flavors and all that sort of stuff, and that might be protein. It might look, look like a result, but it's not going to perform the same way as a piece of, you know, fresh steak or a nice piece of fish, you know, or, you know, some really well-prepared, um, you know, vegan grains, for example, you know, to be able to boost your protein stores up. So I think people, when they attach themselves to a label, you know, go, oh, I'm paleo or I'm vegan yeah. or I'm vegetarian, uh, they, they will they will tend to go with what they already know about their lifestyle habits and yeah. what their dietary habits have been in the past and just yeah. adapt it. They'll drop in a few things, take out a few things, and they kind of just go on that same track. You, you really need to invest some time to understand what it is that makes a particular eating program special and beneficial. So paleo is special and beneficial because of all of the vegetables, maybe because of the exclusion of some grains. Um, the, the beneficial parts of vegan is because you're choosing more vegetables and, and more plant matter um, and with the selection of appropriate proteins. But unhealthy vegans don't eat enough protein, mm. so on and so forth. What I, I guess where I was going from is that one of the most important lessons I learned was from Mike Ash. Um, and I remember a room, like it would have been, I don't know, 200 people in the room, 200 practitioners, I might add. And uh, Mike asked the audience and he said, where does digestion begin? And of course, everybody's going in the mouth and you know, this sort of thing. And he said, nope, in the brain. Um, and, and it's just, yeah. it's really amazing how you can eat a paleo diet, but if you're stressed and you're bolting your food, you're still not going to be digesting it properly. <laughs> That's so true. You know? Yeah. Oh, there's so much. Yeah, there's stress associated with food and lifestyle habits and that sort of thing. I hear people go, you know, one of my mates comes the other day and goes, I've gone sugar free. I go, how come? <laughs> he said, oh, I was eating too much sugar. And he said, oh, I've gone sugar free for only a month. I go, why just a month? He said, oh, because I don't think I could do it for any longer. I said, is it stressful for you? He goes, yeah, mate. I go, well, how good is it going to be? And he yeah. said, what do you mean? I said, well, if you're stressed out about going sugar-free, why don't you just find a way to decrease some of your sugar? Yeah. And he goes, because we've got to go 100%. And I said, it's the 100%. It's the fluctuation yeah. that create the damage. Yeah. I said, if we're, if we're much more you know, controlled and we're measured and we move into something. So you know, maybe it's just taking the chocolate out in the evening. Don't have chocolate in the evening. Yeah. Or maybe it's making sure you, if you're going to have an afternoon snack, you're snacking on nuts and seeds instead of you know, a muesli bar. Yeah. You know, it's just making little changes. Degrees, that can, that's right. You know, 
Uh, yes. Look, I, I totally agree. If you've got a, a, a real quote-unquote allergy or a, you know, a severe sensitivity to a food, then obviously you might have yeah. to think of avoiding it. Celiacs is, a pers- yeah. is, a, is a, the perfect thing where you just cannot have wheat. But That's right. I, you know, for most people, taking out something that gives them enjoyment is robbing them of something of life. It's just crazy. However, uh, the it, it, yeah. can't be, it can't be something that's causing them uh, you know, direct ill health by having so much of it. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. Uh, the ceremony around food for me is so important. So if I'm sitting down with my family, and we live primarily a gluten-free lifestyle. And look, even chatting with Alessio the other day, Alessio Cassano, yeah. was amazing. The symposium you guys put on was incredible, by the way. Uh, oh, thank you. And, and chatting with, um, with Alessio, and you know, he still eats gluten. And what's, I think, really important to understand here is that if the if founder of this whole Zonulin thing still continues to eat gluten, we need to understand that, yes, it's an important function, but it's not the only thing. And mm. there's there's a whole lot of other ceremony that goes with food that makes food beneficial um, and, and makes food you know, nutritious. It's not just what's in the food that we're eating. It's how we prepare it. It's how we're involved Absolutely. in it. how we work with it. And, uh, and and there's there's so much more to it. I think zonulin is one part of it, and I think it's very, very important. It's, it's probably the most important thing that we know at the moment. Um, uh, there's there's got to be a lot more that comes from that. Though. Yeah, I think I think the idea of wheat is that a we've mucked with it so that it's not it's not the wheat that nature provided. It's the wheat that you know I won't mention a certain chemical company, but um, um but um, yeah. you know we, we've oh, cool. hybridised it to include so many more genes than it originally had. That's the first thing. The other thing is yeah. that being a grass. We used to find it along the way and forage off it. So we'd pick a few kernels off and then move on to the next thing and and the next thing and the next thing. So it was this minor part of our diet. Now it is a massive part of our diet. And this is one of the, I'm sorry, it's a ridiculous premise that I just don't understand with the, um, you know, the supposed uh, standard Australian diet. To me, it's just crazy, absolutely crazy that it's become such a huge part. You think about where the food pyramid came from and all that information that came from the food pyramid when it was designed in the early 80s. It was designed by the uh, the Department of the US Department of Agriculture, the mm. USDA. Yeah. Um, and so if an agricultural industry is designing food information and it comes through to us, mm. um, and then our dietitians association then adopts it, um, and then Nutrition Australia starts to adopt it and then moves through into the into the surgeries of the doctors and who are the healthcare providers at the time. Um, you know, of course, it's going to filter through to education. And so it's become kind of a bit of a dogma that's been really hard absolutely, to live. Absolutely, absolutely. From a, yeah, from a nutrition perspective, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, that's right. And, I, you know, in the words of Dr. Jenny Brand-Miller, you know, the, the current mm-hmm. guidelines simply have not worked. We need to investigate. Right. Hello, <laughs> open our eyes. <laughs> Hello. That's right, McFly. <laughs> So, Damien, take me through this evolution that you've had from full-time practice, a real passion for diet, to starting a podcast business, which is like an empire for you. Where was the idea born? (laughs) Uh, I was doing a presentation in Western Australia. So as a chiropractor, uh, we we attend a seminar um, quite frequently. Mm -hmm. There's at least one or four of these seminars that we do every year. They're called Dynamic Growth. Um, and dynamic growth is put on by the Australian Spinal Research Foundation, and it's basically a fundraiser so that we can do research into chiropractic. And um, and the the foundation contributes you know, significant hundreds of thousands of dollars of research to or research dollars um, to the researchers to to find out more about um, you know what chiropractic actually does 
for humans. Anyway, I was speaking at one of those events, and I met this guy, Lawrence Tam. He was a really up-and-coming – well, not up-and-coming. He's been a chiropractor for quite a long time, but he's up-and-coming in the speaking world. And, uh, and having been a professional speaker for a long time, he was intrigued with the way in which I presented. And we just got talking. I said to him, you know what, LT – uh, we should do something um, about this. And he said, yeah, we should do something. So we started this thing, uh, which was kind of a wellness coaching thing where we thought we'd, we'd help chiropractors and naturopaths learn how to implement wellness strategies into their practice. And so we started doing this thing, and it was a lot of fun, but it was a lot of work. And we thought, do we want to do this on top of our practice? And I also had Forage at the time, which is my music company, and I was like, do we want to be doing this on top of everything else? And we realized that it was just too hard to do. So we thought, and, and then Lawrence met another guy, Brett Hill, Dr. Brett Hill, who's a, a chiropractor in Adelaide. And so Lawrence and Brett got talking, and we all got talking, and we said, why don't we put together an information show this new thing called podcasting is coming out. Let's get on the on the, on the wagon really early because it's going to go. It's going to fly. Apple's behind it, so of course it's going to get massive. And five years ago, we launched our first podcast. We had no idea what we we're doing. We just got onto Skype one day, downloaded this thing called Skype Call Recorder, yeah. um, and uh, and we pushed record and we started talking. And then so the guys our very very first episode. You know, Lawrence was really nervous and he was reading off scripts and, <laughs> and Brett had no idea what he should be saying and what his role was. And I was in there saying, oh, you know, this is what you've got to do. And it was very, it was so raw. Uh, and, and so we decided that this was a great medium to get information out very quickly. Uh, we grew to hold the number one position in podcasting uh, wow. in health. And I think that's probably because there wasn't many health podcasts out there. But at the same time, we still got there. And um, and we still claim that title, Australia's number one health podcast. And we, we're now attracting through our network. We've got a network now of 20 other podcasts. That includes Cindy Amira's podcast, Up for Chat, Steph, um, Steph Lowe, The Real Food Real. Um, there's just so many amazing podcasts that yeah. we've got on our, on our network, 20 of them, on the wellness couch. And uh, we now put on different events, you know, for people, you know, for the layperson to come along and, and, and have a listen to, you know, great information. It's all free. And we've been doing it for five years. I think I've recorded over 500 podcast episodes now. Wow. And, um, and we're just, you know, we just absolutely love it. Yeah. Now, you mentioned just before uh, Forage. And that's an interesting yes. little sideline, uh, and I'm going to go places with this, but can you explain where that started, why it started, and how it's evolved? Because I, I want to hook into this about how naturopaths or, or other health professionals can look at another revenue stream to help their business. Absolutely. Yeah, Doing the right thing, by the way, by their patients, you know? Yeah. Look, you know, I hear all the time um, practitioners sending off their patients to go and find stuff. Send them into the wilderness to go into a shop that's you know selling X, Y, and Z, and say just go find yourself a gluten-free whatever, or go find yourself you know this. They might write a brand down or whatever, and uh, and then people go you know wandering and they may lose track of time and they find themselves at the local fresh food market, you know otherwise known as Woolies, and they go and buy <laughs> something made by someone in a factory with a white coat and uh, it's highly processed, but it's called gluten-free. So yeah. they go, oh, that's that's good enough. Yeah. And so they're buying something gluten-free but not highly nutritious. So I've always encouraged practitioners to prescribe food as if it's a supplement. So I encourage people to prescribe forage and say, well, this is a highly nutritious, very unprocessed uh, breakfast muesli that you can have, and I'll talk more about its origin in a second. And I would like you to have this for the next four to five or six weeks, and, and we'll see how your body goes with it. 
And so it then becomes a prescription. People really enjoy it. They, they're able to pick it up in their practitioner's office. It becomes a revenue stream for the, for the practice, and, and that's great. But the origin of it was when I was doing the TV show, uh, I was requested to make a muesli uh, that people could eat and still lose weight. And I was like, how does that happen? You know, how can people maintain a healthy eating program and eat grains and still get a great result? So I had to, you know, think outside the box here a little bit. And I, I thought, well, if I use pseudo grains, if I went down more the seed line, mm. um, I'd go better. So I made a, a mix that was really rich in nuts and seeds. So it was, you know, almonds, your sunflower seeds, pepitas. I thought we've got to kind of make this a little bit, you know, more enjoyable. So we've got some quinoa and some amaranth and some millet. Put some buckwheat in there, it's a little lentil, and then a bit of brown rice, and and I, and I assembled that as a mix, and uh, and it was a hit. People loved it, and then I wrote the recipe up, and I put it in my recipe book, and people were buying it, and then they said, "Why don't you just make it?" And so I decided to then go ahead and make it, and uh, and it's now become quite a you know a, a great. It's a product that is around Australia and New Zealand, and uh, and and practitioners have access to it; they can sell it in their practice. Um, and it works to assist people in managing their blood sugar levels. I always recommend people use an appropriate milk um, and use a good quality yogurt, whether it be a coconut-based yogurt or a natural yogurt or a Greek yogurt. Yeah. I always recommend that people add fruit to that, and then they've got a beautiful yeah. meal. So it started from that. It was, it was originally to help people lose weight, manage cholesterol, manage their blood sugar levels. And I, I, I made it with blood type sort of um, – modeling you know diet approach in in mind so i had to think of how can i put something together that should match most blood types all across the range well i've I've got to say you know the inclusion of nuts especially things like walnuts for tip um especially for their phytosterol component but also the much maligned and i i know you probably haven't got these in there but the much maligned peanut actually has cardiovascular benefits it's it's been bastardized because we we didn't look after peanuts but um you know the aflatoxins and and the peanuts in the bar with God knows whatever germs. But but um, I think it's really interesting. You've combined some nuts that one would ordinarily think of eating raw with some, you know, pseudo grains, whatever you want to call them, you know, the militant things, which I wouldn't ordinarily think of cooking first. So you eat yeah. this stuff raw. Well, I mean, the one drawback that I have, and I'll be 100% transparent here and honest, is that the, the grains in our muesli product are puffed. And so, yes, that does do some damage. And so, yeah, we've got all that. The heat goes through it and bang, yes, that happens. It's a huge shift um, for people to move from cornflakes to something that's yeah. got those, those grains. Yeah, what's your choice? Puffed. Yeah, what else are they going to choose? I know, right. So <laughs> my, my preference would be that people long-term, you know, would, would find ways to bring in other foods into their diet. This is a really um, simple way for people to actually start to eat, you know, fabulous food without – you know, significant challenge on their body. Um, so we've gone down the route of of, of using those puff grains, uh, but we've also got other blends. So we've got a, a bircher blend, and we the birch is made without oats. And so the birch is made with rolled brown rice. It's got you know wow. sunflower seeds, almonds, pepitas, cranberries, coconut, um, macadamia nuts. It's got all these beautiful things in there that just really make it fabulous. Mm. But it's gluten free as well. Uh, then we've got a gluten-free porridge and all of those, all the grains in there, so the, the amaranth and the quinoa and the rice have been steamed and then rolled. Um, then we add some um, um, organic vanilla and some cinnamon um, and some rapadura sugar. What's unknown about rapadura sugar is it's not a process, not very processed at all. It's just the sugar cane ju- juice just dried out and then uh, it's very rich in molasses. So it's got 
high levels of iron, which is so good for celiacs. And, yes. And for people with um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity with yes. iron levels that are dropping. So it's a really great way to increase a dietary source of iron that's, that's vegetable-based. Um, and then we've got a paleo blend, which is grain-free. And so we identified that, you know, for many people, eating grains is a challenge for them. But we've also identified that, uh, you know, in taking people on a journey, taking them from zero to hero is really difficult. Mm, so a nice mm. transition into a, a, a tasty muesli that, um, you know, that offers lots of benefit at the same time could still be improved upon yeah. um, is a great way to go. So. I, ju- I want to ask a question here, and it's something you just said, from zero to hero. So you've obviously looked at that story. And where I'm going with this is about how, what, what key messages would you get across to naturopaths to make a successful, profitable business that is still looking after their clients as number one without selling your soul? Because I think that's what zero to hero does, doesn't it? Yeah. Zero to hero, when you put so much pressure on the patient, uh, will burn people out. And I can talk about understanding how your practice runs. So what are the sorts of people that come into your practice? How much money are they spending in practice before they disappear? How many times does a person come into your practice before they drop out of care? Um, I like to have my naturopaths, and I do do, I have done in the past, I haven't, I'm not doing it at the moment, but I have done in the past um, some coaching with naturopaths. And we look at those metrics to understand What's the, how's their business actually performing? Uh, a lot of a lot of naturopaths think that um, a business is essentially seeing the patient and collecting some money, but there's a whole lot of other things that need to go into that. And it's analysis of the spend um, and analysis of your patient. So some people go, I'm going to package up and I'm going to do lots of different programs and plans and provide all this extra value. And you know, my program for the next ten weeks is going to cost my patient a thousand dollars, and 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 the patient is used to paying Medicare. You know, they're not used to paying a thousand dollars out of pocket, bang, just like that, mm. and uh, and so you burn a massive hole in their pocket. So my first thing for all of my patients was always to collect information. So our first meeting was always about collecting information, and then I gave them a diet prescription. And so the easiest thing for them to do straight away was to be able to change their diet. So we identified what the offending factors might be, where they could actually improve things slightly, um, and I directed them down the pathway of ensuring that they made their breakfast, their lunch, and their dinner as close to great as possible. Not necessarily perfect, but as close to great as possible. And that's the only thing I asked them to do for the first week. And then I'd ask them to come back a week later, and then I will have had a chance to just review the things we went through in the initial consultation, and then go back to them with a report of what I found. Uh, which we could call a report of findings. And in that report of findings, I'd give further prescription around food and lifestyle. So I might now start to include exercise or mindfulness or meditation. But then I'd say, yes, we've, we've got these issues. You can correct a lot of that with your food. But you're going to need some nutritional support as well. And these are the nutrients I'd like you to do at this point in time. This is our priority right now. And so then we prioritize care um, based on what was most important for them yeah. at that time, mm-hmm. given that their body could achieve that shift. So some people like to go and prescribe, you know, seven hundred dollars or eight hundred dollars or a thousand dollars worth of supplements in one go, and uh, and people find themselves eating more supplements than food. And one, yeah. I think it should be more food than supplements. Absolutely, supplements there to support the food, right? So people identified with that and they liked it. And uh, you know, when I when I sold my practice, when I was in New Zealand, I was I was in practice. Uh, you know, really close to full time. I was filming a TV show and I was studying full time as a chiropractor. And um, and it was a very, very busy time. I was working 90, 95 hours a week. 
And what I found myself doing was probably burning myself out, but I had a great practice. And the, the year that I sold that practice, that practice um, was turning over close to a million dollars. And, and this is when I was, you know, in my fifth year of study as a chiropractor. And the reason why it was so successful was because we made sure that we understood what clients could spend and what they were expecting to get. And the the number one expectation was a shift in their lifestyle. Absolutely. And the second most favorite thing that they got was was care and concern. The least favorite thing that they got was a prescription for supplements. Yes. So we made sure that the supplements that we provided were the ones that were absolutely necessary. You know, I think we've lost the the actual meaning of the word sup. Limits, <laughs> rather than main <laughs> limits, <laughs> and, right. it, and it just—I oh, no. just this this prescriptive mentality for a pill, and and don't think that doctors are anywhere outside of this at all. I see this more and more in, you know, from doctors around the place, jeepers, you know, anybody who wants to blame naturopaths for being little pill pushers. So I think we should look at what polypharmacy is because I remember when I consulted in pharmacy, I remember a lady who had reached her free list, that's 52 prescriptions by March. Oh come on! Yeah, I know. So, and each one was well. Each subsequent medicine was to dampen a side effect of the previous medicine. Um, And so, eventually, I'd I'd had it. I said, "This is unethical." We got her into hospital under the care of a physician that I knew, and um, she came out on four medicines. Now, you can't tell me that's not pill pushing. You can't tell me that's not lazy medicine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. four, four medicine. The concept of a pill for an ill, that's, that's yeah. the Yeah, crazy. And, and I think naturopaths have a real lesson to learn here. Do not follow that. Do not try and be little doctors. You know, maintain yeah, that's, the, that's, the principles of naturopathy, which is diet is the mainstay. I love that. You know, the, the moment that we continue to keep ourselves in a position of being an alternative to medicine, in other words, if we continue to try and treat disease in competition with medicine, we will only ever be seen as competitors or complementary and alternative to medicine. Mm. Naturopaths and chiropractors and osteopaths, we're a health profession onto our own. Like we are healthcare professionals. I don't like the idea of being alternative healthcare professionals. We're just, we're healthcare professionals. We train, we have a different model of healthcare. Um, we're not an alternative to medicine. We look at ways in which we can enhance the human performance of the human body. And we do it differently to the way in which medicine does. We're not an alternative. We're not a complement and an alternative to medicine. We're actually a, a system unto its own that can stand all by itself. We very rarely get referrals from GPs in medicine. So we don't need to be um, trying to do everything that they're doing. Let them do what they do and let us do what we do. Mm. Damien, just on the topic of business development um, yeah. and successful practice, what messages can you impart to naturopaths around building a successful practice, particularly in regards to the framework, which um, you know might be restrictive with regards to advertising? Yeah, it, look, the marketplace is changing at the moment, Andrew. It's, it's changing so much uh, to the to the point that um, really, unless you've got a television show like Scrubs or, I don't know, some kind of medical power, you know, TV show where they promote ER's all, the gone, yeah. of all the drugs, ER, <laughs> RPA, or any of those sorts of things where um, your profession's made to seem like it can do unbelievable things always and everybody always ends up being, you know, with a great story. Scrubs? Um, <laughs> yeah, Maybe I not know, Scrubs. look at ways in which people can do it, you know? <laughs> But Grey's Anatomy, for example, you yeah. know, or House, you know, is an yeah. amazing diagnostician. Yeah. And you just 
think that that's just normal. But yeah, no. the reality is that that's, that's advertising. That's because that takes television space. And in the main frame of people's minds, that is the way in which you do healthcare. Most naturopaths and most chiropractors and most osteopaths aren't going to have their own TV show. Tim Robard's got one on The Bachelor, uh, but he wasn't really talking health about that sort of stuff. But if you think about what we need to do, that is we need to provide more information to our community. So my my best recommendation for practitioners out there is to build their community. And the way in which you build the community is to get out into the community. So bring people into your practice by running events such as seminars or open days, um, get guest speakers in that you really resonate with or uh, collaborate with other practitioners that are like-minded. So if you're a naturopath, find yourself a chiro or an osteo, find yourself a GP that you can do some you know, cross-promotion with and, and, and different seminars and events. Um, find yourself a yoga instructor or a Pilates class or one of those, any of those sorts of things. Create your own little B&I, your business network that you can go and meet with and just talk about some of the things that are happening in your life or in your business or in your, in your practice. Um, that they can then also be very aware of what your reason is for seeing a practice member or a patient. Hmm. And so in building your community, it's not so much about making claims of what you can do. It's about teaching people what you're about and who you are. People don't really care. I mean, they do. They're interested to know whether or not you've had success in a particular thing, but they really want to know whether or not they can have a relationship with you. They're not that concerned about whether or not naturopathy is going to be good for them. It's like, are you the naturopath for them? And so they, they identify now, and we're moving into an age where people are identifying with personalities. That's why Facebook's popular, Instagram's popular, Snapchat's becoming more popular. Like all these social media things are all about collaboration, communities, conversation, and identifying with personalities that would otherwise be unreasonable. So you don't need to make yourself a celebrity, but you need to create a community, and you do that through providing information. So the more free information you get out there, the better. I spoke to Amy Skilton about how to use a social media effectively, and she was giving some really salient points, indeed some warnings about what not to do, which was very interesting. <laughs> um, I've got to ask you, you've developed a really successful network. That's come over time, but surely it can't have all been smooth sailing, right? Take us through what the highs and the lows were. What's, what sort of things would you say to be mindful of or to, be, um, to avoid? Definitely the highs when people say nice things about you. That's that's an absolute high. You love it. You know, having the opportunity to come onto FX podcast and, and talk with you, Andrew, that's a high. Right? Having recognition, that's a high. And so I really, I love that. I enjoy that. I think that's absolutely fantastic. But the lows are when you've got detractors and they're the ones who kind of, you know, pull and tug and try to defame you. And there's groups out there that literally are set up in order to defame and to, to do things that are, you know, counterproductive to the health promotion um, that naturopaths and chiropractors and, and you know, natural health practitioners want to actually, you know, promote. Yeah. Um, and and I used to get really sucked in by the bad stuff that was written about me. And yeah, there's, I've, there's a, a a group of um, doctors that are part of a friend in science and medicine group, and uh, and they've put together a website. You know, and on that website, uh, there's there's a whole lot of chiropractors and a whole lot of naturopaths that are listed in there as being uh, rogues and being, you know, dangerous and you should stay away from them. And I'm one of those. I'm one of those ones that's been, you know, listed on there. And I used to take a lot of offence to that. But I now don't worry about that because the people that are around me and come to see me are the ones that continue to support me. Mm. And, uh, and so I'm focused more on what I can control as opposed to what I can't control. I would think the, the Friends in Science of Medicine would have every single chiropractor in Australia on that list, wouldn't they? 
Oh, at the, at the moment, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> off the back of Catalyst, off the back of ABC, yeah. and then, you know, yeah. the project and all the other shows that they it's just the same old repeated story. What, what, I, what I think is interesting is that Catalyst doesn't um, have any coverage of the doctor that got a hand slap because they lied, that is, lied uh, with regards to their medical acumen, their medical training, or not their medical training, their medical work previously. They got a slap on the hand, but they were still employed by Queensland Health. Thanks very much for that. So, um, you know, we don't see these. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, well, no, don't we don't. Yeah, quiet. we don't see yeah, these as, as a like. I'm I'm blessed, I guess, to be a member with APRA, and and I see the dirt as well with regards to what happens with nurses, and we don't see that. That's sort of kept in house, um, unless something public blows and the media gets a whiff of it. But it's just you know we've seen the media blow. In, indeed, have we so much um, with regards to? Um, I think I might have seen one small story with regards to the um, uh, specialists using low dose um, or underdosing indeed with chemotherapy at a certain Sydney hospital. And I just think that's very interesting. <laughs> uh, but no, no, yeah, it's the chiropractors that need to be deregistered. <laughs> so really? Oh, I know. Oh, it's amazing. Well, there's always things going on. I think at the moment, for, I think there's an enormous number of investigations at ARPA at the moment and the number the, the one profession with the greatest percentage of complaints against the profession um, is not chiropractic, it's not physiotherapy, it's not osteopaths, it's not naturopaths, it's not nurses. Um, 4% of the whole profession is under investigation um, and, uh, and, it, and it's not it's not the ones that they would like to call alternative or dangerous. Yeah. You know, there was a situation a couple of years ago where an obstetrician accidentally um, virtually de- decapitated a baby with a forceps delivery in Geelong. Mm. Um, still have the article. It appeared on page seven of a newspaper, um, whereas, you know, if you look at Ian Rosberg's um, YouTube video of him adjusting a little baby the other day, uh, that's that's had millions and millions of hits, you know, and the, the, Ian wouldn't put a video up if it was a bad outcome, mm. you know. Mm. You, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. It's mm. not going to be a good outcome. And so the baby's very safe. The baby's very happy. The parents are very, very happy. Um, I don't adjust babies like that. Um, Ian does, and you know he does it, you know, with a lot of safety. But um, if the amount of attention that that's brought, um, that's unwarranted, is, uh, is is profound. Yeah, to me, the difference is page one, page seven. Hang on. Yeah, there it is. Uh, I, th- I think there's a, an inequality there, but. We will move on to something more positive now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Look, I think there's a lot of really great things happening in our profession across the board. And the reason the reason why there's so much attention coming in is because we're all doing such a great job. Yeah. Um, if we weren't doing such a great job, then um, then there'd be less attention. Oh, I look, at, and, and literally, and the government would shut us down. You know, if we were dangerous, then we would be shut down. But, you know, naturopaths and herbalists and homeopaths and acupuncturists, we, all, all of us, we have such a high safety record and a very high satisfaction rate with our patients. Uh, the satisfaction rates far outweigh the satisfaction rates of, of mainstream medicine because people don't want to just take drugs. They want a solution that's lifestyle-based. They want the power to come back to them. Look, look I can't wait for the day that it becomes uh, a mainstream acceptance, if you like, that medicine has a model with which it works really, really well with. But in yeah. independent to those very powerful pharmaceutical agents or surgery or whatever, particularly pharmaceutical agents, in a, in attendance with those, there is a certain um, array of side effects or adverse events that we can minimise yeah. or mitigate by using nutrition, diet, lifestyle, 
meditation, yoga, and all of these things. Um, and I liked it. I really liked the words of a, a, an oncologist who has embraced safe and effective evidence-based, what she calls, she said, not integrative medicine. She says, it's supportive care. It's just evidence-based supportive care. If it was a, a cherry, you wouldn't bat an eyelid. But, you know, she said where there's evidence, she will use it for the betterment of her health, of her patient's health. And I think that's where yeah, we need to sort of bridge the, the, the gap. But I think also naturopaths need to move a, a bit as well, not a bit, a lot as well. In, yeah. Um, we do all dialogue. of our evidence-based art. Yeah. yeah. And our dialogue's got to improve. But yeah. our evidence-based... You know, unfortunately, um, our evidence base doesn't have the funding um, that ah. Big Pharma provides for the, ah. for the other stuff. Well, you so can't patent. challenging. You can't patent a herb. No. You can't patent an egg. No. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, you know, we, we have to rely on government funding. And I think last year the government spent $1.2 million through the NHMRC budget, $1.2 million on alternative medicine research. Um, $1.2 million doesn't not go very far with no. a big farmer's budget of billions of dollars. So, you know, our evidence base is going to be slow. We, we It's going to be difficult for us to do RCTs. Um, but... You know, getting together and getting um, case studies, I think that's a really important way we can actually start to get information and evidence out there. We have to understand that evidence doesn't only occur in the university studies. It doesn't only occur in the RCTs. Evidence is what we see in practice. Yeah. So getting um, case studies written up and, and published is a good thing to do. Mm. Um, you know, we can't use testimonials anymore, So, and it's not wise to use testimonials because no. it implies that if we do one thing, it's going to happen to the next person. We can't say that. So what we've got to be able to do is give case studies uh, that we can then go on and, and promote further research with. Mm. And that's, that's a great way to get to build our evidence base. And for our natural health practitioners, uh, Dr. John Wardle has posted up, uh, I can't remember which Facebook group it was, forgive me, uh, about how to write a proper case history. Um, that's published. That's publishable, um, and I tell you that man is a man of reckoning. Like he's amazing, along with Dr. Amy Steele and what they're doing to help naturopaths being a force of recognition by, you know, eventually I hope becoming registered is just incredible. They're really good people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, Damien, just just on wrapping up, what sort of advice can you give other practitioners with regards to, you know, following your dreams to build a successful business that's still looking after the heart and soul of your patients? I, that's that's a, a, such a great question and it's so easy to answer. The number one thing, if you look at corporate structures and you look at the way in which a, a corporation runs or, or any of the, the big companies and multinationals, if you look at the way in which they run, they're very driven by their purpose and their mission and their vision. And the reason why they make a decision or the reason why they might acquire a company is because it, it fits, you know, what, what they or they can see that it will add strength or they, they they know that it actually helps to deliver more of their message. And I think it's really important that as natural health providers, we also have a vision and a mission and a and a purpose. And if we've got that and we and we live by it, then that, that becomes attractive. And so I, I in our practice, we every year we go and have an offsite. We go and recreate and just revisit our vision, mission, purpose. Mm. Um, we make sure we're always strategizing around that. And, and the only reason why you have vision, mission, and purpose is because you want to create change. And people will follow and people will come to you if you're trying to create change. If they suspect or they feel that you're only about the dollar, then they'll run for the hills. Yeah, good. Um, but <laughs> if they feel that you're there for 
them or you're there for the greater good or you're there spreading a message of you know hope or greatness or good health, then people will come and they will spend money. People don't like to be sold to, but they like to spend money. And uh, and so I like to encourage everybody who I who I surround myself with to be clear on their purpose, their vision, and their mission, because in that with that clarity comes a really you know, an easy to follow model around building your business, and it's and not still serving the community. And it's not as easy as you might think. Oh, I'll just write them down in five minutes. You really have to put some time and effort into figuring out what is your your mission and your vision. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. and your purpose. You know, purpose is one of those things that um, helps you live a long time. You know, we often talk about longevity, and we talk about. And one of the great things about my podcast is that I, one of my podcasts is called Hundred Night Out. We're taking a group of of people over to the uh, the Greek island Ikaria, the people that listen to our podcast. We're taking them to the Ikaria to learn the secrets of longevity from the Ikareans because it's one of the blue zones. People forget to die in that in that little island, and, and so we want to learn why they live to beyond a hundred so often, so frequently. So we're going there. So there's benefits to doing a podcast. Um, but I can't even remember what I was going what I was going to say there, Andrew. But I think the the key thing uh, to to remember is that when you've got a purpose, you you actually provide yourself with with something to be able to achieve. If you don't have a purpose, there's there's nothing that you ever could achieve. It's kind of like your goals. It kind of it's the wrapping around your goals. It's the wrapping around the reason why you've got a vision or a mission. The purpose. Uh, whether it's to have a great life or whether it's to help other people grow or whether it's to, you know, I don't know, live on an island in Greece called Korea. Whatever your purpose is, that's what's going to drive your decisions around um, your business. Some great points on not just your story, which I think is a, a really wonderful story, a really nice positive story, but on also um, how you can teach others to build, uh, you know, to thrive, basically, to reach prosperity. I, I think that's some great messages that you've given us. Thanks so much for joining us today, Damien. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Thank you. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This is Andrew from FX Medicine. We thank you so much for your support over the last two years. We'd really love to remain clinically relevant to your practice. So if you know of an expert in some area, please let us know. You can contact us on fxmedicine.com.au, Facebook or Twitter. 